Psalm 34. Before we begin, I just want to read the psalm. Psalm 34 of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, their, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many good days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears, and he delivers them out of all of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, but those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Amen. In his poem, Prayer, the Anglican pastor and poet George Herbert gave some 28 descriptions of what prayer is. One of the most memorable of those descriptions is the soul in paraphrase. In turning to God in prayer... If we're open and honest with him, we are, in a sense, paraphrasing the things that are nearest and dearest to ourselves. We're communicating what is of deepest value to us. We are bearing our souls before him. Uh, if you think about that and then think about your prayers, <laughs> that's a sobering thought for me. Like, what, what does that say about my prayers? As we come to Psalm 34, we need to remember the setting. Conveniently enough for us, the setting is given to us right at the top of the psalm. It says, of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. So, so we remember this is the same setting as our text from last week. David has been fleeing from Saul, and in doing so, he heads straight into the arms of Achish, the king of Gath, which turns out to be a bad idea. He fears for his life, and so he changes his behavior in an attempt to preserve his own life. He starts drooling, letting the spit run down his beard. He's scratching the walls like he's some kind of wild animal. 
But while Psalm 56, which we looked at last week, emphasizes the fear that David experienced and what he then did with that fear, how he processed that fear, here in Psalm 34 we have a different focus. Psalm 34 is about tasting and seeing the goodness of God. This psalm falls roughly into two parts. The first is a testimony to God's goodness, verses 1 through 10, and in the second, David's teaching on the proper response to that goodness of God, verses 11 to 22. But before we dive into the meat of the text, we should probably say a couple things about the title itself. So you might remember, either from me just saying it, or from our study last week, that in 1 Samuel 21, the name of the Philistine king is Achish. The king of Gath is Achish. But here, in the title, he's referred to as Abimelech. Is that a discrepancy? Is, is there something going on there? I don't think so. Abimelech, it seems, served as a title for the kings of this region of Palestine, going clear back to the time of Genesis. So you see multiple kings that are run into in Genesis, and they're referred to as Abimelech seems to be a similar term to Pharaoh in Egypt, or later Caesar would be used that way in Rome. Initially was a guy's name, but then everybody after that just took that as their title. The second fact of note is is this phrase, when he changed his behavior. Some of your translations might say he changed his countenance. A literal rendering into English might say something along the lines of changed his taste. That wouldn't make any sense to us. And so the translators, they use words that both match the original meaning and uh, that draw our minds to that that story in 1 Samuel. But the phrase changed his taste will connect for us later in the story. Taste is an important part of this psalm. David acted without taste, but God would nonetheless deliver him. To quote William MacDonald, this episode is certainly not one of the more heroic or brilliant chapters in the psalmist's checkered career, but he nevertheless looked back upon this dramatic deliverance from the Lord, and he wrote this psalm to celebrate that event. You know, we don't, we don't look at what David did there in 1 Samuel 21 and say, that's how we should act when we're afraid, just like start drooling all over yourself. Like, that's not the, the point, but he could still look back at that and see, God still used it. God still delivered me and I can rejoice in his salvation. So as we move through the psalm, I just want to walk through stanza by stanza and allow both David's praise and his instruction to walk over us, wash over us. So verses 1 through 3, I have this theme of, I will always bless the Lord. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. David opens this psalm exulting in, rejoicing in God. (laughs) (laughs) I wondered what that scooting sound I kept hearing was. Must have been him sliding forward. So David opens this psalm rejoicing in God. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times, even when I fall off my chair. (laughs) His his praise shall continually be in my mouth. Shouldn't this be our, every one of us, this should be our aspiration to always be praising God. 
David has just been through some very terrifying circumstances, not the sort of thing you would normally say, praise the Lord about. One, ones in which he's not necessarily even acted in the most wise or godly fashion. And yet, here is, here is the impulse, I think. We, we often you hear people ask, like, how can David be a man after God's own heart? This guy, he sometimes acts like a coward. Sometimes, sometimes he is... Uh, He's responsible for the killing of Uriah because he had probably raped Uriah's wife. Like this guy, a man after God's own heart, my foot, right? But, but the impulse I think here is, that we see is why God in, in 1 Samuel 13, 14 can call him a man after his own heart. David is not a man after God's own heart because he lacks sin. He has sin in spades. But his heart is a heart after God's own heart. Because though he often falls, and though his enemies press him from all around, his heart makes its boast in God alone. David invites us into his response. He says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me, verse 3, and let us exalt his name together. David wants you to read this psalm and realize whatever your circumstances that this is a God you can join him in praising. No one is worthy of praise like the God of David is worthy of praise. Let the humble hear and be glad, he says. As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 16 through 18, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Have you ever wondered what God's will is for your life? Well, Paul just told you it's this. Join David in his song of praise. That's God's will for you. Why, Why should we join him in this song of praise? Because he's a God who delivers, verses 4 through 17. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Notice the way the logic moves in this, this passage. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. In verse 4. Then verse 5, those who look to him are radiant. There's this, this move from the particular of David's own experience to the universal, what everybody should look at that situation and see is true about God in general. David cried to the Lord and he answered. Now David is able to say, those who look to the Lord, all of them, not just David, all of them are radiant. And we see the same move in verses 6 and 7. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his trouble. There's the particular individual experience and then he universalizes it. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. This move from the particular to, to the universal. Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner writes, If the sequence in verses 2 and 3 was in essence, I have reason to praise, join me in praising God. Here in verses 6 and 7 we see that, that David is saying, This was my experience, this salvation from God. It can be yours, too. You can have the same salvation that David had. 
When you read the scriptures, I wonder, do you just see interesting stories, things that happened a long time ago? Or are you looking to see what can be learned about the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever? The same God who heard the prayer of David still sits on the throne, and he is still eager to make radiant the faces of those who look to him. The same God who heard David's cries for help will hear your cries for help. In the message translation paraphrase of the Bible, uh, Eugene Peterson, who's, who's doing the translating there, he regularly translates the, the term for God, El Shaddai, or as most of our Bibles would say, God Almighty or the Lord Almighty. He, he always translates that, as far as I can see, the God of angel armies. And that's a useful phrase for us to think about here as we, as we look at there at verse 7. The angel of the Lord, the God of angel armies, the leader of his hosts, in camps with those armies, I think, around those who fear him. Does anything seek to harm you, to hurt you? Well, if your confidence is in the Lord, then it has to go through him first. And if it came to you through him, well, we're going to see then that, that he thought it was, it, it was part of his plan, as hard as that can be for us to fathom. Nothing gets to you that he doesn't know about. Verses 8 through 10, we see we are to taste his goodness. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. David closes the testimony portion of this psalm with an even clearer invitation in taste and see. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And that might sound strange to us, right? How in the world can I taste that the Lord is good? That sounds almost disturbing. Are we supposed to find God and lick him? (laughs) How do we taste that God is good? But but language like this helps us to see that that there are other places where we're told to know the Lord, to acquire knowledge of the Lord. And what we need to know is that when we see those kind of phrases, it's not just an intellectual, in-my-head kind of knowing, understanding that God wants me to have. God doesn't want to bypass your brain. Your brain is important. But there can be a world of difference between comprehending certain nouns, verbs, and adjectives and, and being able to piece together what logically they mean together and actually trusting the truth of what they communicate. It's one thing to know in your head, God is good. It's another thing entirely to taste and see that the Lord is good. Jonathan Edwards, in his book, The Religious Affections, puts it this way. Spiritual understanding primarily consists in this sense or taste of the moral beauty of divine things. He elsewhere uses the analogy of honey. It's it's one thing to know in your mind, honey is sweet. But but if you've never had honey, knowing in your head that honey is sweet, well, that's great. I know a lot of things that are sweet. Pixie sticks are sweet. (laughs) But until you've tasted with your tongue the sweetness of honey, 
those words aren't going to have the significance that they should have for you. Do you know this taste of the moral beauty of divine things? Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? If you haven't, I don't think verses eight and, or 9 and 10 rather make any sense. If you haven't tasted that God is good, verses 9 and 10 are going to seem like they're off the wall. What does he mean by those who fear the Lord have no lack? How, how can he say that those who seek the Lord lack no good thing? If my perspective is set entirely on this world, then these, these phrases that David uses are obviously nonsensical, even dangerous. But if you've tasted the goodness of the Lord... If your taste buds have had that experience of ultimate good, then your spiritual appetites will have changed. The young lion is looking for a meal, and sometimes he goes without that meal. But the follower of Jesus Christ has another kind of meal, another kind of bread that isn't dependent upon changing circumstances. In John 4.34, you might remember this is the story of the woman at the well, and and one of the side things happening in that story is Jesus' interaction with the disciples. And so they've gone into town to, to get something to eat and, and to get some water. And they come back to Jesus, who's been interacting with this woman. And they said, Master, you need to eat. And he says, I have food you don't even know about. And they start asking, well, like, did the lady leave him a sandwich? Like, what's going on here? And, and he says, no, my bread... My bread is to do the work of him who sent me, John 4.34. To do the work of him who sent me. I don't want to diminish the very real fact, very real fact, that God is happy to provide our daily earthly needs. Give us this day our daily bread, we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Sometimes his provision comes in in such surprising and generous ways that, that we would never have expected, that we couldn't have... We couldn't have expected and we wouldn't comprehend. But I also, I want your heart to know that there's another kind of bread and milk. That even if you run out of the kind of the bread from, bread from the store, milk from the store, you will still lack no good thing if your communion with God is made deeper and sweeter through the milk and bread of his word and his work. First Peter chapter 2. Verses 2 and 3 says, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So we now turn from the invitation that David gives us to praise the Lord and to taste his goodness to his instruction on how to rightly respond to that goodness once we've tasted it. And the first thing we see is that we should turn away from evil. Verses 11 through 14. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many good days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. I think Derek Kidner is again helpful. Just a side note, like if you're ever 
if you're one of those people that wants to, to buy a commentary on a book of the Bible, if you're in the wisdom literature, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Derek Kidner is the guy to pick up. They're usually brief. He doesn't like write these long things that are hard to understand, but they're so good. He, he's just an excellent Old Testament commentator. I think he's helpful on these verses. The good that you enjoy, so verse 12, is there a man who desires life and loves many good days that he may see good? That good that you enjoy goes hand in hand with the good that you do, verse 14, turn away from evil and do good. It is an emphasis which answers the suspicion first aroused in Eden that outside the will of God rather than within it lies enrichment. So, so beginning in the garden, we have this idea following Adam and Eve that if I'm going to be happy, I've got to go away from what God told me to do. That, that's, what, that's what Adam and Eve are thinking, right? The, the, the serpent comes and says, here is the fruit. God is holding back on you. And they see that it's desirable for food and it's desirable to make one wise. It's appealing to the eyes. And so they think, if I disobey God, that's how I get on, in on happiness. And here David's answering that old objection to God. By saying, no, if you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, turn away from evil. Turn to God. This is where happiness is found. Seek peace and pursue it. I wonder if you have that same suspicion that Eve had. We all do deep down in our hearts. That doing things our own way is the place to find true joy and happiness. And if we think that way, David says, wrong. <laughs> wrong. Would you see good and have a, a long life? Then turn away from sin and put lies away from your tongue. What should you pursue instead? Doing good. And then a doubling up of that pursuit of peace. He says, seek peace and pursue it. So like, look for where it is and then run it down. Go find peace. And peace will only be found in following God. Because the truest peace is peace with God through our Lord. Jesus Christ. As Paul says in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of, our, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Continuing on in Psalm 34, we see we are to turn our heart over to him. Verses 15 through 18 say, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. When I'm writing notes of condolence or sympathy, to those who are experiencing trials or loss, I, I don't know if there are any verses that I quote more often than, than Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. It's just such a precious promise. Now, I think, I, I literally, I think about this verse probably three or four times a week. 
that that's who God is near to. He, he's near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. What a, what a precious promise. And as we look at verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears toward their cry. Our minds are drawn back to Psalm 56, 8 that we looked at last week. You've kept count of my tossings, put my tears in a bottle. Are they not in your book? We see in verse 16 that if you choose to disregard the Lord, we see a warning there that you are cutting yourself off from the source of life, the source of joy, the source of health. But those who are righteous, that is, those who have received righteousness from God because they don't have it in themselves, they have a sure and strong help. In the words of William MacDonald, verse 17 tells us that the Lord does not deliver believers from troubles, but delivers us out of them, delivers us out of those troubles. Believers are not immune to troubles, but they do have a mighty deliverer. That's the crucial difference. Final thing we see, verses 19 to 22, is that we are to take refuge in him. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Have you tasted the goodness of the Lord? Have you sung what uh, Larry Norman called in 1969, that sweet, sweet song of salvation? Here's the bad news. That's no ticket out of bad times. <laughs> that's, that's no ticket out of hard times here on earth. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, verse 19 tells us. But the good news, we have a deliverer. Luke, Luke 21, verses 16 through 18. Jesus says, his disciples, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all people for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. Some of you will be killed, but not a hair of your head will perish. It sounds paradoxical, but that's a, that's a tension as believers that we're often not very comfortable with. But it's one that scripture gives us both in the Old Testament and the New. To walk with God does not exempt us from the general suffering of a sin-soaked world, death, illness, betrayal, on and on. But furthermore, hanging a Jesus is Lord sign over our lives then makes us the target of his enemies. We, we might even be increasing our earthly trials by coming to Christ. So 1 Peter 4 tells us, do not think it is strange when the fiery trial comes upon you. But we have this hope. Though affliction will one day slay the wicked, they will finally be brought down because of their wickedness. And, and the afflictions of, of this life and then eternal life will be bad for them. They'll receive resurrected bodies too, but then Revelation tells us those are then cast into the lake of fire. Affliction will cut them down. For those who hate hate the righteous, they will be condemned. But the believer in Jesus Christ, the one who's been clothed in his righteousness, will come through all of his or her, her suffering, and not one hair of your head will perish. Or in the words of this psalm, none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Why? 
because Jesus took all of that condemnation on the cross. All of it. He soaked up all of God's wrath for our sins in such a way that all of our suffering in this life now, it's not a punishment. Are you suffering? God is not punishing you, but purifying. Do you trust in Jesus as the one who has taken away your sins? Then whatever your circumstance in life, you can praise him because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. Have you tasted that goodness? If so, praise him at all times. Let his praise never leave your mouth. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you that you are a God who is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And if we will take our spirits that are crushed by the circumstances of this life and cast all of our hope on Jesus, who is our deliverer now and in the age to come, you will give us that eternal life that we so desperately need, that hope in this life that we so desperately need. Help us to taste and see that you, O oh Lord, are good. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.